Well, thanks for having me. How many of you heard my testimony the last time that I was here on a Wednesday night? Okay, so a few of you. Some of you will hear that again tonight. And for those of you who, who did hear that last time, you'll hear some things that you didn't hear because there'll be another sermon kind of tied in here with that. Uh, I was born into a Muslim family in Tehran, Iran, in the early 80s, soon after the Islamic Republic had gained foothold of that great nation, what used to be the Persian Empire, what used to go back to kings in the Old Testament like Xerxes, Ceres, Artaxerxes, kings that Nehemiah would appeal to. But then it got captured under the yoke of Islam, And everything went downhill from there. Every Iranian will tell you that. Regardless of their political affiliation, pretty much every Persian would tell you that. And I grew up in that. My family was a Muslim. They were proud Muslims. My mother was one of the most zealous Muslims in the family. How would God get to us? Though we were strangers to God, we sat in our pride of Islam. Like so many people do. You don't have to be a Muslim to be proud. In fact, if I could tell you what Islam really is in a sentence, I would tell you this. Islam believes the only way to heaven is to do good works. And that on the judgment day you'll stand before God. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, Islam teaches that you go to heaven. Well, that sounds to me like every other religion in the world. You see, Christianity... Is not about do, do, do. It's about done on the finished work on the cross. And it's very unique in that respect. But the pride of life and man, what we like to see is we want our own hands to earn this when we can't. And that's what I grew up in was Islam. And my mother would raise me up. I became the most zealous and serious Muslim child of the three in the family. I would become exceedingly prideful. And then we would leave the Middle East. But I have this memory, though, of the Middle East. I only have a few we left when I was five or six. But I have this memory, though, of darkness. And it was the sirens. I remember the sirens would go off. And it would sound to you like maybe a hurricane siren. Uh, where, Where my wife and I live now in Nebraska, it would sound like a tornado siren. And we would look at each other, and fear and terror would come over everyone. And then we would run and hide into the basement of the buildings we lived in because the siren meant bombing. And we would sit there in that basement in that darkness and we would just kind of stare at each other in the dim candlelight waiting for the bombing to end. We sat in darkness and we needed a great light. It wasn't going to be any political thing that would rescue Islam and the Middle East from the bloodshed that has engulfed it, it would have to be the cross, the great light, to take us out of that darkness we sat in. The Lord Jesus Christ would come in Matthew 4, if you want to follow along. We'll be a little bit in Matthew today. And then I'll skip around later in some other scriptures very quickly. But it will be in Matthew. In Matthew 4, the Lord Jesus Christ has come. He's come to his own people. And they've rejected him. And in chapter 12, after he has, I'm I'm sorry, in chapter 4, after he has received the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, been tempted by the devil and passed in chapter 4, 
We see in verse 12 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. It's a single verse, but it's an important one. This verse sums up for us that what has happened is Israel has rejected the forerunner to the king of kings, John the Baptist. The man of whom Jesus Christ would say he is the greatest of all born of women. And the William MacDonald commentary says having rejected the forerunner, they would also reject the king. It was an ill omen at this point that his own had rejected him. He had come as the only man who was an insider with God because he was the son of God. He has come and they have treated him harshly and put him out. And so now he's going to go to the outer regions, to the foreigners, to the strangers, to those who though in their great pride were sitting in darkness. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's come to the outsiders, those who were not the Israelites. In fact, some, people, some theologians point out that he's gone quite a ways here out of Jerusalem to do that, to come to those who are on the outside with God. What would that look like today? those who are foreigners to God. What's a foreigner and a stranger to us? Is that strange to us? The Lord Jesus Christ has come and he's about to go to the outsiders in Matthew 4. This is the beginning of the ministry to all Gentiles. Anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. And he's about to approach them. Would we, as followers of Jesus, would we approach her? How many of us walk away from something like that in fear? Interesting image. That those who have sat in darkness of Islam are here in the West. Those who sat in the Middle East are here in the West and and a woman of Islamic descent in a hijab with an iPhone. A, A melding and bringing together of East and West. They're here in greater number than ever before in light of ISIS and other fightings in the world. What are we to do? Well, there were plenty of foreigners in the day of Jesus Christ as he walked the earth. And the gospel has been rejected by the Israelites, those who were insiders. It's now going to go to outsiders. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And at this point in the gospels, he is walking the earth. He's the Lord of lords, King of kings. No one like him has ever walked the earth in the flesh. He could do anything. In fact, he will do many amazing things. But as the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles and the foreigners and the strangers as the gospel is going to go out to all these people. He can bring anyone to help him. It's up to him. He's God. He can pick. You know what some of us might have done? We would have, I know what I would have done. I would have gone to Caesar. 
And I would have said, Caesar, I've made you very powerful because I'm God. I want you to give me legions to serve me in this good work of the gospel. I want you to give me your best emissaries. Give me your best soldiers, centurions, Caesar. Give me your best. The gospel will go out. I would have gone to Herod and said, Herod, your dad tried to kill me. And I'm going to forgive that and forget that. If you give me your best writers, messengers, poets, emissaries to carry the message of the kingdom to the farthest reaches of the world, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ is the kingdom of heaven. That's what I would have done. But the Son of Man is very different from any man. Here's what he does. And Jesus Christ, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. He chooses the weak. These men would have had no standing, no position. In fact, they would have stank of fish. Do you feel disadvantaged when it comes to going and sharing boldly with any of these people or any other people group? They were fishermen, friends. Lowly. And they had to even learn to become much more lowly as they would follow Christ. For in the kingdom of heaven, the way up, they say, is down. The lower you go, the more God will use you in humility. And they would be called to follow Christ. Now, you might say to yourself, boy, this is easy. Leaving stinky fishnets to follow Jesus Christ, the risen king. At this point, he hasn't risen yet. But the king, leaving fishnets to follow the king is easy. I guarantee you, you have fishnets in your life right now. And you're not so quick to leave them. There was no greater calling. They were called. They left. They followed him. As we seek to follow Christ, he teaches us. And he maketh of us the lowly fishers of men. As we follow him, he'll teach us how to fish the proudest fish out of water. I was very proud. I was born in Iran. I was a zealous Muslim child. I was as proud as they came. I was very lost. And then my parents immigrated to North America. I grew up in New York State most of my life in upstate New York. I remember being newly arrived there. My mother would tell me, she would say, Ali, we're not in the Middle East anymore. Now, we're in the West. We're in America. These people, they don't believe what you believe about Muhammad and Allah. In fact, at least some of them, they're all about their Messiah. And when you hear about him, when you hear about their Messiah, I want you to remember something, my son. You're better than that. Oh, what damning words to tell your son. But she loved me. She felt she was protecting me. She didn't know the truth of the gospel. The scripture says no one can say Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. And she had no Holy Spirit, my mother. And so she would say this, and every time she said it, she was putting a coin, a shiny coin of pride into the slot of my heart. And exceedingly proud I grew every day 
under the tutelage of my mother and being raised a proud Muslim. Boy, does pride bring you near God or very far away? How proud pride drags you away. That's why the scriptures tell us that God hates a proud heart. Because it keeps them from seeing their need for a savior. And yet, friends, I would become even more proud. It was as if God was saying, go ahead, heap it on, make it harder for me to save this one. What would happen is I would go to school and then I would study rocket science and I I would quit that and I would change to business and then I would actually come out of school without finishing my degree. I'd get recruited. I'd get offered a job on Wall Street. Say, oh, I'm the best thing ever, I thought to myself. That didn't help my pride. I go start working on Wall Street. I'm a proud Iranian, a proud, proud Muslim, a proud New Yorker, and now becoming a proud Wall Street man and seeing all the wealth in the world Think of the warning of the Lord Jesus. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. If I would have become rich, friends, if I would have got caught up in the fishnet of money, I would have been finished forever. And here's what happened. As God was gracious, I started on Wall Street and the financial meltdown got right underway. Right straight away. My friends and relatives started making fun of me. They, they started saying, you know, Ali, you started on Wall Street and the meltdown started like the next day. You tripped over a cord, pushed a button or something. We know it. I said, I guarantee you I haven't done anything. They have me on a simulator. It's a simulator. I can't even access the market. I can't even buy or sell anything. And by the time I came off the simulator, a lot of guys had left the firm and gone on vacation. And I would say, where are these people? And they'd say, they're all on vacation. I'd say, well, can I go on vacation? They'd say, no. You have to stay in work. And and the meltdown was getting underway. No one knew quite how bad that was going to be. And all my bosses said, stay and work. There's promise for you. There's a lot of money to be made, Ali. Throwing all those stinky fishnets that humanity gets caught up in every day. And yet, the Lord God would give me a mentor at that firm. He had no financial interest in me. But God made him care for me. And he came to me and when my bosses were saying, stay here, there's promise for you on Wall Street, he would tell me something a little bit different. He would say, run for your life. Get out of here. This whole meltdown is going to be horrible. We don't know how long this will go. Just leave. Go anywhere. I don't care where. Anywhere you want, go. Apply on the internet. Go ahead. Put on your resume. You've worked on Wall Street. Someone will hire you and then you can leave. And and I'll tell you in six months and you can come back. It's been just over ten years I haven't gone back. (laughs) And so I put in my application. I said, okay, I'm going to leave. And then I applied to some financial firms. I heard from uh, from one financial firm in Omaha, Nebraska. I said, Omaha, Nebraska? I'm not sure where that is. They called me. They said, we see your resume. He says, here, you work on Wall Street. I said, yep. And I'm thinking about my mentors told me, run for your life. Get out of here for six months. And they said, to our understanding, you're working on Wall Street, but you're willing to come here in the Midwest in Omaha, Nebraska and work for us. Why? I said, I need a change of scenery. (laughs) and they believed me Islam does teach that if you lie there's like four different ways of lying that Islam teaches are acceptable by God what do we expect from a false gospel and so I told that lie they believed me and they hired me over the phone I came into Omaha, Nebraska now I'm a proud New Yorker a proud Muslim a proud Wall Street guy a proud Iranian and now I'm in Omaha, Nebraska where the saints are lowly, humble. I'm looking down my nose at everyone in pride. 
not wanting to even make a friend. I remember I'm at a financial firm working as a broker. Everyone there is a full-time broker, and I'm looking around, people saying, I know it, I know it. They're all secretly probably farmers. <laughs> yeah. When I share this in, in Nebraska, they explode in laughter, because some of them are. <laughs> It's a godly vocation to be a farmer in the Word of God. We see it in the Old Testament. And yet I was judging people. I was so high in my pride. How would God get through to me? Through the fishermen. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Through the lowly that would follow him. I remember I was at that financial firm and oh, I I prided myself shamefully on how I dressed better as a New Yorker than the Nebraskans. And I would look around and say, yep, They're all farmers, I know it, and I'm the best dressed here. And then I noticed the guy who was dressed better than me. And I said, well, I'll be. I came from the cutting edge of fashion in New York City, and this Nebraska kid is outdressing me. If my sisters knew, they'd be ashamed of me. And so I said to myself, I'm going to outdress him the next day. I came to work the next day. He was dressed better than me again. (laughs) And the next day, he was dressed better than me again. It began to bother me, eat at me. Oh, the things that bother the prideful, they're funny. Who cares? But it ate at me. It was burning a hole in my head, and I was thinking to myself, don't let it bother you so much, Ollie. Just look at him today. Look at the belt, the shoes, the, the, the color, coordination. He can't possibly be straight. Write him off. Write him off. Don't pay attention. Oh, it bothered me continually. I came out of the cafeteria. Now, this is still the first, maybe second at the most, second week of, of living in Nebraska. I come out of the cafeteria and I see him there. I said, Well, there he is. Let me go say hi and find out who this guy is. I went up to him. I said, Hi. I said, Can I join you? He said, Please. I sat down. I put my tray down and I, eat, I started eating my food. And I was watching him like a hawk. He was eating and reading something. He had one book open on top of another that was closed. I said, what are you reading? He said, oh, these are books about evangelism. Proud fish as I was, I ran right into the net of a fisherman studying (laughs) the trade of fishing men. I ran right into his net. At what point do we begin to believe, friends, that the people who are here are here to run into your net? I ran right into his net in Omaha, Nebraska, proud as I was. Now, how would God get through to me? How would I hear the word? How would I even care to hear it and be changed by it? Well, the word of God has power. How would I hear it? I didn't care to hear it. How would I hear it? Here's how... Thomas was his name, that fisherman. Here's how he would be led by the Holy Spirit. He would come up to me, and as the Spirit led him and gave him utterance, he would say, Ali, I like you, man. I'd say, well, I like me too. (laughs) That's about the best thing he could have told me. I said, I like me too. He said, I like the way you dress, Ali. I said, I've noticed how you dress also. I like that as well. And he said, Ali, in fact, I can see you're a man of principle. That right and wrong matter to you. And in fact, Ali, I think... I think you would appreciate this more than most people I know. And I said, well, I probably would. And share it with me. Go ahead. What is it? And he would quote the scriptures. They would come rolling off his tongue like the most beautiful poetry I had ever heard. And I had studied poetry. I'd written some myself. And I'd studied Shakespeare in school. But the words that came out of Thomas's mouth, there was nothing like them. I would say, what is that? So I know I knew you would like that. 
those were the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me, and I will make of you fishers of men. I ran right into his net. And, I, and he would love me, friends. He would love me. Like I was his own brother, he would love me. The greatest of these is love, says the New Testament. You know, I heard one preacher say, if we treat them like outsiders, if Jesus Christ came to Naphtali and Zebulun and treated them like outsiders, they would have always remained outsiders to God. If we treat them like friends, they may become your friend. If you treat one of these, the least of these, like your brother or your sister, don't be surprised if they become a child of the king, your brother and your sister. And so Thomas treated me with love. And, and I was a New Yorker. You, you didn't have your own mode of transportation. You used public transportation in New York City. They penalize you if you try to do anything different with parking tickets and all that stuff. And I remember I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, and boy, in Omaha, Nebraska, you need a car. I've heard that the public transport here isn't too great. You know, you need a car in Omaha. It's, it's horrible. You could be, get on a bus and wait two hours to get someplace. And I remember Thomas would give me a ride anywhere I needed all the time. When somebody gives you a ride, you have to listen to them. <laughs> he's got his Christian music going. He's talking about his God. And he's a fisherman following Christ. And I'm caught in his net every time I'm in his car trying to get to where I need to come. Eventually, I would come to a point where I would say, Thomas, you don't listen to me. And this is what some of these people may tell you eventually. I would say, Thomas, I've been trying to tell you that the Jesus you believe in is the same God I believe in. I believe in Muhammad and Allah and, and you believe in Jesus Christ and your Lord and I believe they're the same thing. Is that true? No. No. You hear that message, that universalism message today. It's extremely dangerous. It robs people of salvation. And so I would tell Thomas, I'm ready to test your God. I'm ready, Thomas, to show you that your God is the same as my God. So, it's on. Because I like you, I'm going to test your God and I don't know, sign, sign me up, 30-day free trial. And that bothered him, that I wanted to test his God. He went away bothered, but he came back encouraged like any fisherman following Christ. He had his Bible with him. He said, you know, Ali, you said you wanted to test God, and that bothered me because the Word of God says, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. In fact, Jesus in the previous chapter has just quoted that to the devil. Do not tempt the Lord thy God. And so he said, I wouldn't expect you to know that, but that's what it says. But I went and I found something. And I know you're a man of your word. You mean what you say. If you want to test God, you mean it. I said, that's right, I do. And he said, so I went and I found something in the Old Testament where God specifically says, test me in this. I said, okay, read it. Now my Wall Street ears are listening. And you may know the scripture given to the Old Testament Israelites. God says, test me in this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this and see if I do not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so great there will not be room enough to take it in. My Wall Street ears heard that and said, Thomas, read that one again. What is that? Okay, yeah, that sounds good. I want the windows of heaven open. I'm willing to test your God. And, and how, how does this tithe work? That sounds to me like baby's teething, right? Well, I got all my teeth out now. He said, no, it has nothing to do with babies. You see, as we witness to some people, we have to realize that the most fundamental of things is totally unbeknownst to them. And it's incumbent upon you as a fisherman to teach these things. He told me what the tithe was. I didn't tell him, but I got pretty excited when I heard the tithe was, was like a 10% thing given to the Israelites because my mother had told me, 
you know, a proud, proud Muslim you are, Ali, you ought to be willing to give as much as 30% of your income to Allah. Well, I've never done that. That was a lot of money. And here Thomas said, I can test his God for 10%. I said, I'll buy that stock. That's a discount. I get to, I get to test Thomas's God at a discount rate and prove he's wrong. And the windows of heaven might open too. Deal, I thought to myself. I said, no, Thomas, I'm willing to do the whole 10% thing. He had such faith, friends. He said, Ali, it's just one of many of God's promises. This one's given to the Israelites. He said, but I believe, Ali, if you were to just try God, test him as he invites you here, with $20, you would see him move in your life like you haven't before. Fishermen must have faith. He had great faith. And I told him, no, we'll do the whole 10%. And we did. And I remember I, I, the way that he set it up is I went to one of their worship practice meetings on, on Wednesday night. He gave me a ride there. And we went to his worship practice. And then they finished their worship practice. And friends, that was powerful as they worshiped the living God and sang in his name. I thought this is the most amazing rock concert or musical exhibition of all time. But in my pride of Islam, I didn't say a word. They came down from that practice. They said, what would you think? I said, you're okay, you can sing. I didn't show him what was happening in here. You know, fish won't show you what's happening in here. Sometimes fish don't know what's happening in here. And so here's what happened is, uh, at that worship practice, they would pass the money back around. And, and Thomas would, would look at me and go, wink, wink, wink. And I would think, oh, this is it. And I would take that tithe out and i put it in the envelope. Who passes a money bag around that worship practice? Nobody. They did that for me. <laughs> they did that for me. Thomas had told him, hey, this Muslim kid, he wants to test our God. Pass the money bag around. And so that happened. I put that tithe in, and I thought to myself, that's the end of that. I remember, I remember specifically the moment I put that money in, and I thought, Thomas is going to see he's wrong. He's going to see his God is the same as mine. Nothing's going to come of this. And I went home and, and it was haunting me all of a sudden. Money that was owed to me from months ago, several months ago from New York. I had worked for a firm. They had, they had promised to pay me. They had not paid me. They owed me about four to $5,000. I'd lost track of exactly how much it was. I'd taken it up and I'd totaled in what I thought it should be and I'd sent that to the New York State Department of Labor. I'd complained to the authorities for that money. I couldn't get that money. I'd called the New York State Department of Labor time and time again, and I told them, what do I need to do for you to get that money for me? And they said, yeah, we do need you to do one thing. And I said, what? And they said, stop calling us. <laughs> it was a bureaucracy at its best. And so I'd given up on that money. And I remember I'm at home, and I'd given the tithe, and it's haunting me, friends. It's haunting me. The windows of heaven should be open. You know, I, I really want Thomas to be wrong. I want Thomas to be wrong for the test to show nothing and for me to tell Thomas, your God's the same as mine. But if the windows of heaven, if they're supposed to be open, I, I, could, I could gain four or $5,000 here. I want Thomas to be wrong, but I want my money. I want Thomas to be wrong, but I want my money. I want my money. That's what I decided. And here's what happened is I remember walking in my bedroom in my one-bedroom apartment in Omaha thinking to myself, well, I've never had an answer to prayer in 25 years I've been alive. I'm going to have to go negotiate and ask their God for this. Do you hear what I said? I hadn't had an answer to prayer in 25 years.
No answer to prayer. Will you be the first to pray for them? To pray with them? They'll be amazed. We sometimes become numb to how amazingly the answers to our prayer come. How quickly and in perfect timing from our Father in Heaven. I'd never had an answer to prayer and so I remember I thought to myself, if, if I want this money, I have, to, I have to make it worthwhile for their God. I was so proud. I remember I thought to myself, oh, I overheard that one Christian tell the other one, when, when you're a Christian and you really want to go to war, you don't, you don't buy a gun or a sword. You go into your closet and you pray. So that must be where they go when they talk to their God. And so I went into the closet. I shut the door and kneeled down. I said, I, I can't believe Christians do this. This is where they come to pray. I said, well, never mind that. It's kind of weird. But I said to myself, well, God or Allah, I suppose you know they owe me. They owe me $4,000 and they won't pay, so I, I'm ready to, if you, if you get this money for me, I'm ready to give you half. Is that a good deal for you? I hope so. Amen. <laughs> and came out of there. Came out of there. I didn't have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I wasn't saved. I just wanted my money at this point. And I, in my pride, and in their pride, I, in my pride, had the had the had really the nerve to go before the throne of grace and barter with the king and wheel and deal with him as if he needs my $2,000. What were the thoughts of the Lord Jesus concerning me? This proud kid, he doesn't know me, but he's about to. Phone rang that week. It was the New York State Department of Labor. I couldn't believe it. They never called me. It was always the other way around. And they said, are you Ali such and such? I said, yeah. And they said, are you at such and such address in New York? I said, no, I'm not. They said, where are you? I said, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. They said, why? I said, never mind that. What do you want? Why did you call? They said, well, we want to send you a check. I said, oh. And she said, yeah, we're looking here. We need to have a current address for you to send a check. I said, okay. Um, can I ask you how much? She said, sure. Let me look. $8,400. Wow. It was either 8400 8204 It was one of the, it was above 8000 8, I couldn't believe it. The first thought that entered my mind, friends, was this is the God of Thomas. And then doubt entered my mind. I said, I can't believe it. They've had my case for all this time and they've gone and messed it up. They got the wrong case. I told the lady, I said, you got the wrong number. They only owe me four to 5000 She said, hold on, I'll call you back. She called me back. She said, is this your full name? I said, yeah. She said, is this your case number? I said, yes. She said, okay, well, this is your case. They owed you the money and we looked at it and you were right. And so we penalized that company, that four or five grand they owed you, and we charged them interest. And we compounded it monthly at a rate of 18%. It's been all this time. Your money has doubled. All we need is an address. I said, here's my address. <laughs> they sent me a check for 8000 I had worked on Wall Street but I'd never had a check like this. Answer to prayer by the living God in any area is direct. It's clear. Especially to the unsaved because they lose hold of it sometimes, right? They miss it, completely miss it. It was totally clear. I went and I told Thomas and you know what bothered me more than anything was though he was happy and he rejoiced for me, he was not surprised. Fishermen who follow God I've seen him work before. They're not surprised. And over time, God would do more miracles. You know what's amazing? 
what did I promise to give God? I promised to give God half. And what did God do? He doubled it, right? And like a typical sinner, I kept it. I did, until I would be saved, okay? Until I would be saved, I kept it. But when I was saved, I remember I was driving down the freeway one day and the conviction of God came down on me. You owe God $4,000. And I pulled over right away. I found some charity and paid that money and was squared away with God. But, but for the time, for two and a half years in Omaha, after that money would come, I would not act. I would break my end of the bargain. You know what's amazing? He would continue to do more miracles like that in great grace. It's the goodness of God that leads sinners to repentance. As you labor and witness to your friends, to your family, and it seems they don't even care, that sometimes it seems you're dangling that lure or that net and the fish isn't even paying attention or an answer to prayer comes and they don't even care. God cares and He is working. He is at work. God would continue to do miracles. We don't have time to go over them tonight, but he would continue to do miracles. I would come to a point where I would become jealous with Thomas because his God always answered prayer in Jesus' name. I became jealous and I avoided him. Oh, he was a discouraged fisherman. I said, enough of this guy. I got out of his net and I swam away. And I remember they promoted me at the company. I totally missed the message of the gospel, the true riches. And I got taken in by the tithe. I was like, this is the best investment scheme ever. And I said, this Jesus thing I'm not ready for, but I'm going to keep tithing and get rich and rich. And what happened was I got promoted at work. And I was like, oh, this is working. This is, these are the dangers of a prosperity gospel, of give and get rich. The kingdom of heaven is about much more than money. That you could be poor, have nothing, and yet the word of God says, possess everything because you have God and the Holy Spirit. And I lost that message. And I remember I kept tithing. I got promoted at work and here's what ended up happening is they said, we want you to pick someone to shadow in the company for this new position we're going to give you. I said, yeah, good, good. I've been in Nebraska for a while now. I'm a good judge of character. It's about time you let me pick who I want to shadow. And I know who I'm going to pick. And enough of that Thomas guy, done with him. And I remember looking at different people, saying, who do I want to shadow when shadow day comes? And I picked one guy, and he wasn't dressed particularly nice at all. In fact, I can't tell you today why I picked him. The day came, they said, it's time, Ali. Go pick the guy. Go sit next to the guy you picked the shadow. I went to go sit next to him, and I was like, I got out of that net of that Thomas guy. I sat down at this other guy's desk. His name tag said, Dan. You know what it should have said? Youth pastor. Out of the net of Thomas and into the net of Dan. Is this consistent with the word of God? Let's read what's next and you tell me. He said to them, follow me and I will make of you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Thomas didn't know Dan. Here, these brothers may or may not have known each other. But the good news is that there are many fishermen downstream whom you do not know. And God knows them all. Thomas didn't know Dan. Dan didn't know Thomas. And after Dan would come Kevin. Kevin didn't know Dan. Dan didn't know Kevin. Kevin didn't know Thomas. Do you see, friends? You are members of a divine conspiracy. Orchestrated 
by the one, Jesus Christ, in heaven, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, to whom has been given all authority. He is orchestrating. When a fish turns away from you and swim away, smile and pray. It's only a matter of time before it gets caught in another net. And I got caught in Dan's net and then Kevin's net and I came to a point where I said, that's it. Everyone in Nebraska is a Christian. <laughs> I thoroughly, it's funny, but I thoroughly believed it in my mind as God was working. Yeah. How many Christians are talking to them? We don't know, but we know God is working and we know the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Pray, therefore, for your heavenly Father to send workers into the harvest, the Lord Jesus says. The next worker and fisherman is you. They've left their nets and followed him. What happens when we follow Christ? It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. They brought to him all sick who were afflicted with their various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. When we follow Jesus Christ, we see him do miracles. And in this age of grace, late, before, near to his coming, the greatest miracle isn't some bodily healing that lasts until you die. It's the spiritual reconciliation of God that lasts forever. The true healing for which he walked the earth, to become fishers of men, we get to see that. Thomas, Dan, all these people had witnessed. And I got upset and I said, that's it. I'm avoiding every Christian. In fact, I'm not going to leave home very often. Except, of course, to go and indulge in sin. How funny is that? And eventually I got tired of my life. And I remember coming home one Saturday night. I said, I'm not going anywhere tonight. I'm just going to watch some Netflix because that's safe. <laughs> I won't run into anyone there. I turned on my Netflix. And at the top... It said, suggested for Ali, the gospel of John. <laughs> suggested for Ali. Ali is a Muslim name. What's wrong with the Netflix algorithm? <laughs> One brother pointed out to me, Ali, you ran into a net. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. Whose hand is Netflix in? The Lord. I ran, at the end of it, friends, I ran into his net. I watched that movie underestimating Jesus Christ and his walk and the disciples that followed him. I watched that movie. It is a visual Bible. And that proud Muslim, that proud foreigner, that proud Iranian wept like a small boy. I wept and wept. I remember looking and, and uh, seeing on the screen what they were doing to Christ. And weeping, saying he hasn't done anything wrong. Similar to the words of the thief on the cross. This man has done nothing wrong, said the thief. But we justly are receiving the due reward for our sins. I wept like a small child. I remembered that I had a Bible from my days with Thomas two and a half years ago. I went to my bed and I pulled that out and I opened that up. And and then there was a piece of paper from Dan in that Bible. and, And it was written to me, if you're serious about this, go to Romans 3. And Romans 10. I went to Romans 3. I I read, it is the courtroom of God. And one guilty indictment after another is rendered by the Spirit of God against the heart of man. I read those charges and I wept. That proud person was reduced 
to a smidgen as I wept, and I said, I'm guilty of all of these charges. Then I went to Romans 10, but what does it say? If you don't know Christ, friends, listen very closely. To know him begins as so. Romans 10, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's that simple to be saved. The walk is difficult. I'm not going to promise you an easy life because it doesn't exist when you follow Jesus Christ. These men had to follow, had to leave everything to follow Christ. They had to leave much. The command continues about following Christ. Not just Matthew 4. It goes on to Matthew 8. A man says, let me bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Another one says in Matthew 9. Um, that's when Jesus says to Matthew himself, who wrote this gospel, follow me. Matthew remembers it and records it as led by the Spirit. Matthew 16, 19, Mark 1, 2, 8, 10, Luke 5, 9, 18. These are all chapters. John 1, 12 all the way to the final chapter of John, the final command of Christ. If I will that he remain until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. It's a difficult life to follow Christ. Your family may hate you. Your friends will unfriend you on social media. You won't be popular. Some days you'll think, why did I pick this life? But then the Holy Spirit of God will remind you. Because now you know God. And He's worth all this and so much more. And as we follow Him and we suffer as He suffered, we remember His sacrifice. And we remember that the reward and glory waiting for us when we were reunited with our King far outweighs anything we may suffer for the sake of following Him. The early church in Acts, they were taken, they were beaten, they were told not to preach, and they were let go. It says, they rejoiced, for they had been counted as worthy to suffer for the name. That's the walk of following Christ. It's the greatest walk. It's difficult. It's 2,000 years later, but the command of God still rings true. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now the foreigners are here in greater number than before, and we need fishermen in this good work. Who was a stranger in the word of God? Pardon me as I go over. If you have to leave, that's totally excusable. You can, you can go if you must go. I'm, I'm going to go a little bit more over. Is that okay? Who is a stranger in the word of God? It runs through the entire Old and New Testament from Genesis. It begins in Genesis 12. Abraham's a foreigner. Okay? Look at this picture. God says to Abraham the patriarch of the faith, you're an outsider with me. Abraham would be a foreigner. Genesis 15 says, you and yours for 400 years, your followers will be foreigners. Abraham's a foreigner. His descendants are foreigners. That means Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob would be foreigners. Jacob would stand before Pharaoh and meet Pharaoh, a foreign king. And Pharaoh's one question to Jacob would be, how old are you? And Jacob's answer would be, I have been a sojourner, a foreigner for a hundred years and 30 years. Moses would be born a foreigner, die a foreigner. Joseph would be born a foreigner. He, he would go and be a foreigner into the foreign household. 
I shouldn't say born a foreigner. Joseph would go and serve in a foreign household. He would be a prisoner to a foreign king. He would be raised as second man to Pharaoh, again a foreigner. He would continue in the days of his sojourning. Sojourning, in one literal translation you'll find in the New Testament, it tells us resident alien. That's the exact wording of the Department of Homeland Security for these people. Isn't that interesting? Your New King James, if you look at the column, it'll say oftentimes resident alien. It would continue. We would get mentions of the law and foreigners and the law. Exodus 12, Leviticus 2, Numbers 9, Numbers 15, twice in Numbers 15, God would say whether you're an insider with me, an Israelite, or you're an outsider, you will have one law for the native born of Israel and one law for the foreigner residing among you. Why? One law because there would be one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. It was a foreshadow that God would bring the outsiders in. You had the Old Testament saints, foreigners, and then the New Testament saints. It reminds us in Ephesians 2 that you were once foreigners and strangers by what is called the uncircumcision made by the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? We were foreigners. We were just like this. In fact, some of us may remember having come over as first generation, or our parents have have told us, as second generation immigrants. The Old Testament saints, those who were insiders with Israel, the outsiders who were in the camp of Israel, all of them counted under the same law. All of them labeled as foreigners before God. Us, before our salvation, being brought near by the blood of Christ, we also foreigners who left only the angels and Jesus. Hebrews 13, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Strangers. Foreigners, sojourners, aliens. These four words run. What about Jesus Christ? He's the only one who's left. In Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. They will say, when did we see you a stranger and take you in? In verse 38. And in verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. From the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the angels, and even the Son of God himself takes on the status of a foreigner for one purpose, that we, seeing them, may see the Lord Jesus, may think of the Lord Jesus and his angels and desire to minister to them so that they could be saved. I'll end with this story. 
The true story of one Muslim family's journey from the Middle East to the Western world depicts the dire circumstances that daily affect countless others who make the same journey. One family immigrated out of the Middle East, leaving behind great possessions, having only their children and a few suitcases. Their journey to the New World was wrought with challenges, dangers, countless months spent traveling and waiting. It seemed sometimes the bureaucratic red tape had no end. And they finally arrived in the United States, foreigners and strangers. And I'll just shorten this a bit. It says they didn't understand the culture of the new nation. They didn't speak English. To make matters worse, their one contact in the whole of the United States that they could rely on, another Muslim man in their family, had backed out on them, all but disappearing at the last moment. He had promised to take the family in upon arrival, but had now just backed out leaving a husband, a Muslim husband, a Muslim wife, a Muslim 12-year-old, and two six-year-old twins with no place to stay. Without a place to sleep and no friends, they took their children and luggage, going out on the town looking for a hotel. It was difficult to find a hotel. They finally find one, and the hotel tells them, look, the 4th of July is around the corner, okay? So we can rent you a room, but you'll be out on the street in a couple days, and everything's booked for that holiday. And so that happened. For a few nights, they had a place to stay. And then the fourth comes, and they're out on the town, wandering with their suitcases, foreigners and strangers in this land, not even speaking the language. Finally, under great stress and giving up, they go into a park for the night. And then as it gets dark, people start to come into the park. More and more people start coming around. It was the 4th of July, and unbeknownst to this family, there were going to be fireworks. And the fireworks display begins to go off. And the family realizes that's why everyone's gathered here. People were just coming into the park staring at them. They were obviously foreigners. At long last, one married couple notices the family, immediately taking note of the fact that they're strangers, speaking a foreign tongue, and the American couple lovingly approaches the Muslim family. Think of approaching these people. And it begins a conversation with them, only to learn quickly that the foreign family did not speak English. Still, the American couple was determined. They showed genuine concern through continued patience and several attempts to use motions and hands. They learned this couple from the, from the distant world had no place to stay in their own world. They quickly offered their home to the Muslim family of five who happily accepted the invitation. The whole family was relieved. Now, the drive to the American's home was over an hour away from the place of the fireworks, fireworks but they put in the time, and by nightfall, by the, I should say by the end of the night, the entire family of five Americans and five Muslims were under one roof. Ten people were now in one house with a safe place to sleep instead of just five. And the days that would continue, the Muslim family would eat with the Americans. They would begin to learn the language, the culture from the American family. The Americans... Family, American families' children began to treat the Muslim children as their own best friends, treating them as brother and sister, sharing everything with them. The American family man's name was Jerry Thomas. Jerry would make it his mission in life to do everything in his power to make sure that the Muslim family man and father was able to secure a job at Jerry's own place of work. He went further to help him secure housing, find a good school district and neighborhood for him and his family. Jerry didn't stop there. He would even convince his own friend to sell a used car to the Muslim man at a deep discount. 
wasn't long before the Muslim family moved out and got started a life on their own. The Muslim parents worked hard. They sent their kids to school. The family would go on to accomplish much. But in all their successes, they never forgot Jerry Thomas and his family. The family that took them in on the night of the 4th of July, placing the needs of foreigners and strangers as greater importance than celebrating their own independence. The Muslim children were 12 and 6, but young as they were, they also never forgot. Not after 28 years, the love that Jerry Thomas and his family had shown them when they were foreigners in this strange land. I was that six-year-old boy. That was me and my twin sister, too. We had no place to stay. Now, I wasn't worried. I was just a kid, but my parents were so terrified. Jerry Thomas and his family, they could have preached John, Matthew, Mark, Romans they could have preached. But they preached boldly and loudly the day they took us in. I tracked down Ellen Thomas. Jerry has passed away. I tracked down Ellen Thomas. I called her. I said, Ellen, I haven't forgotten. Why did you do this? You had ten mouths to feed. You had five and you took five more in feeding ten. Why did you do it? She said, Ali, I looked at you and I looked at my own daughter. And I said, how could I let my own daughter be out on the street? We took you in, you, your sister, your whole family for as long as necessary. I think we were there a few weeks, a couple weeks at the most where we moved out. Friends, I was six, but I remember everything about it. I remember the names of their children. Kirk Thomas, who was older than me. He was like a giant. I would look up to him. He treated me like a brother. Though I was a foreigner, stranger, he treated me like a brother. Heather Thomas, Crystal Thomas, Ellen, Jerry Thomas. I even remember the name of their dog, Penny. We were, we were Middle Easterners in a Western home. A dog in the house. We couldn't believe it. That dog, Penny, would lay in the kitchen entrance. And we would just stand, and my, me and my sisters, there's a circle around it looking at it. And our mom would walk by, and she'd say, don't touch it. And she'd just keep going. And when she would leave, we would touch it. We loved that dog. We wanted to play with it. Why do I remember these things? God doesn't let me forget. And if I remember, how much more our Heavenly Father? 22 years later, I would land in Omaha, Nebraska. And in two and a half years' time, by the witness of many, I would be saved. Does God forget? Never. Never. Follow me, he said. I will make of you fishers of men. We're going to do a study starting tonight right here on reaching these people for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this great calling. Lord God, we remembered you at the first meeting. What a wonderful God you are. That the Holy Spirit came upon you and you could have done anything with it. But you laid down your life to save us. And you walked and you ministered to the outsiders, the foreigners, the strangers who were us. 
And now, Lord God, you're bringing them here. Not enough of us have gone overseas. The harvest has remained greatly plentiful. The workers, horribly few. And now you've brought them to our doorstep to be saved. Teach us to follow you now, Lord, more than ever. In Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.